Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Mark Asara. Mark is a former US Air Force KC-135 Stratotanker pilot. This interview, he mainly focuses on his time flying the tanker, and he also talks about his time in the Gulf War. Also, if you enjoy what we do, please visit us at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, where you can help us from as little as $1 per month. Also, visit our website at aircrewinterview.tv to sign up to our newsletter and to watch all our other interviews. So please enjoy. Thank you. From watching 707s and coming in and out of Los Angeles International Airport, I mean, we were right underneath them. You could feel the... uh, the air pressure around the airplanes as they're coming over our heads as young kids standing on my grandfather's hood. Mm. And uh, since we're close to the beach and it's very moist air, they would often have the long ribbons of vortexes coming off the wingtips and off the flaps. I mean, it made for some incredible memories as a young kid watching all of this. And I wanted to fly 707s. I, I dreamed of being able to have my own 707 that I could fly. You know? So went to pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma. And everybody starts you know, wanting to fly fighters and so forth. Very few people end up actually flying fighters coming out of pilot training. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got KC-135s. Our drop was about 25 KC-135s to my class. So um, I ended up going to Pease Air Force Base flying KC-135s. Now, as a funny note, uh, recently I was in England, as you know. Mm -hmm. We tried to get hooked up while I was there. It didn't work out. And we flew home on a KC-135. Uh, space available and the bus pulled up to the KC-135 and I started laughing okay of course everybody on the bus you know what's wrong with this guy all of a sudden he's lost his mind Mm -hmm. the tail number was 8874 22 years ago I was stationed in Okinawa Japan with the 909th air refueling squadron 8874 was not only one of the Young Tiger Squadron's airplanes, it was my airplane. It had my name on it. So my wife, my 14-year-old son, and I flew home on tail number 8874 that used to be my jet back to Tampa, Florida. That's really cool, isn't it? I took the opportunity to go through the aircraft forms. 8874 is 53 years old. It has 24,433 hours on the airframe and 6,000 landings in 53 years. Okay? That's that's something. That that says a lot about this old airplane. You know, everybody always says if it's Boeing, we're going. <laughs> and look at how long we have been flying this airplane behind me. 53 years. Um, amazing airplane and it'll probably fly for another 20 years um, 
who knows? It may even refuel the KC-10 on it on the as the Gucci bird goes to the <laughs> boneyard. Who knows? Yeah, that'll be something, wouldn't it? Yeah. But uh, Curtis LeMay bought 732 of these airframes behind me. Mm-hmm. And they became literally the backbone of the air refueling world. Uh, I have refueled British airplanes, German airplanes, Italian airplanes, obviously Navy and Marine Corps airplanes. And uh, it's been the air refueling workhorse for five decades and will continue to be so. I went to Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma. Um, Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma is about as flat as any terrain you'll ever see. You can stand on a tuna can and see Chicago from Oklahoma. Hmm. It is so flat, okay? Uh, It started out in T-37s. Uh, the old uh, tweet, and then uh, into T-38s. We call it the white rocket. It was a wonderful airplane to fly. Okay? Supersonic speeds, uh, flying formation at 400 knots. I, I mean, it was just a lot of fun. What's interesting about the afterburner on the T-38 is you see the F-15 and the F-16 with the orange flame. The B-1 and the T-38 have blue flame. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the blue flame afterburner, particularly when you're taking off at night in formation, is pretty spectacular. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite fun to see. From uh, Vance Air Force Base, uh, at that time, all KC-135 training was taking place at Castle Air Force Base in the Fresno Valley, Merced, California. And you had... 12 flights that lasted about nine hours, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, I started uh, flying the 135 at Merced with um, a gal that was going through upgrade. Uh, Kathy was from the squadron I was going to, the 509th Air Fueling Squadron, so that was really nice. I got to fly with her and learn about Pease Air Force Base. And most of the training missions, you take off out of Castle Air Force Base, and we would head north to uh, an AR track called 7 Alpha Bravo. Mm-hmm. Uh, 7 Alpha went north from Mendocino, California to Portland, and then you would turn west out over the ocean, and Bravo would come down the California coast. It was really a picturesque place to do training, Okay. Uh, we normally refueled B-52s, which were going through training also at the same base. That's also where the combat crew training squadron was for the uh, B-52. Sorry about that. Noisy airplanes behind me. A little airplane, so it's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then we would do what's called a navigation leg. And this was before we had uh, GPS. So we actually, the navigator would do a navigation leg based on uh, the sun or stars. Uh, You know, just like Magellan used to navigate around. And uh, that was the way a lot of KC-135s in the early years 
navigated to various locations. You know, guys would crews would fly from the states to Guam and fly in the uh, Vietnam War, and they would navigate to Guam from the West Coast by celestial navigation. And then, of course, inertial navigation systems came along, and uh, that improved things, but you could only put 12 waypoints inside the box, and you may have up to 30 waypoints uh, for a flight from, say, California to Hawaii, and then Hawaii to Guam or something. So you're constantly having to put uh, waypoints in uh, as you flew past um, waypoints. Um, then, of course, we went to what's called the Pacer Crag system uh, in the KC-135. And it's got a ring laser gyro uh, INS in it. And, uh, I mean, it's fantastic. We flew from Rota, Spain to Spokane, Washington. And when we landed, the box was only off about, I think it was 307 feet, mm. which is just absolutely nothing. And when you've flown for nine hours and, you know, several thousand miles. So the 135 has gone through a lot of changes. Uh, but all of that took started with training at Castle Air Force Base, uh, which was a great place to fly and we would do uh, approach and landings at Travis and Vandenberg and, and Beale Air Force Base and, and, uh, and then come back and fly in the pattern at uh, Castle and then land after. And typically the sorties lasted between eight and nine hours. Mark chats about a typical sortie. I'm going to use Operation Iraqi Freedom as the model, okay? Average shorty duration during Iraqi freedom during the Shakinaw campaign uh, was five and a half hours, 5.5, okay? Um, we would take off out of uh, Prince Sultan Air Base where we had uh, 38 tankers on the ramp, KC-135s. Uh, we also had 12 KC-10s and 10 VC-10s on the ramp at uh, Prince Sultan during the Shakinaw campaign. Um, we would fly north on a virtual highway system that we created to move airplanes in and out of the air refueling areas, okay? And <clears throat> those areas were very fluid and would change as the war would change. So, you would fly into one of these air refueling boxes, and the box was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide, mm. which allowed us to refuel all the fighters, but particularly the B-1, because as the B-1 gets heavier, you have to decrease bank angle, otherwise it has to go into afterburner, which kind of negates the air refueling. <laughs> so, and... Typically, you would be in the box for anywhere between uh, two to almost three hours. A typical offload was in the eighty to ninety thousand pound range. Um, to give you an idea, an F fifteen E burns about twelve thousand pounds an hour with a, a full bomb load. 
uh, and they would take 15,000 pounds uh, each time they came up. So that's 60,000 pounds amongst the four strike eagles alone. Um, sometimes you would refuel like the AWACS, okay, Luger, uh, or the British AWACS, which was covering Western Iraq, and its call sign was Bondo. Uh, not to uh, diminish the American AWACS contributions to the war, but your Bondo guys were really good, <laughs> okay? The uh, RAF uh, guys flying here, uh, I think it's E3Ds, yeah. were very good at what they did. And uh, one night, uh, I was the chief of the air refueling control team managing all air refueling in the theater. And I decided to go up for a ride sitting in the jump seat just to see what was going on. And uh, an F-14 went down next to us, uh, actually underneath a KC-10 that was in an air refueling track next to us. And Bondo managed the, uh, the search and rescue for the downed F-14 crew. And listening to Bondo on the radios gave us a great sense of confidence that uh, the F-14 crew, they were from uh, VF-154, the Black Knights. Oh, that they were gonna get to yeah, one of my favorite squadrons. Yeah, yeah. So it was like the only F-14 lost. And, and it was due to uh, a mechanical uh, malfunction. I can't remember uh, the exact story, but uh, they picked it. They picked the crew right up. Anyway, back to the missions. AWACS and the RC-135s, the Joint Stars, uh, typically took uh, sixty to 80,000 pounds. Wow. You know, you say 80,000 pounds, you know, what is that? Uh, our fuel loads were 180,000 pounds on every airplane. That made it easy to do the maintenance and the, uh, uh, the reconstitution of the airplane. So, clear wide, we put 180,000 pounds on the airplane. Uh, and that gave us, like I said, between 80 to 90,000 pound offloads. So the typical mission, again, you're in, the, in this air refueling, we call it an anchor, it's actually inside of a box. It's just a long oval, but you could manage that oval however you needed to. Uh, you know, if you had guys coming from the north, you would obviously turn to the north to uh, affect the rendezvous. Uh, but you would be in the box anywhere between two and a half and three hours and then turn around and come home. Uh, back to uh, Prince Sultan and we did uh, some defensive maneuvers coming back in uh, and uh, going out uh, that I'm not going to go into here but uh, during that five and a half hours things were sometimes pretty intense yeah you know when you're when you're trying to get a crew off of the desert floor um, things are happening pretty fast because now everything that you're doing is um, very off the cuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody plans for a down air crew situation and when it happens you have to use assets that are already in the air which 
makes the air refueling mission much more complex mm-hmm. because now you're having to refuel uh, F-16s, F-15Es. Uh, you have to make sure the helicopters are getting up there. Uh, the C-130s that refuel the helicopters may need gas. And uh, it becomes kind of an endurance uh, issue as you're trying to find the survivors. Uh, you're burning a lot of gas, like I said, about 12,000 pounds an hour mm-hmm. uh, in the Strike Eagle times four. And about 3,500 pounds an hour in the F-16s times four. Uh, you can see how this adds up. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you may end up offloading 150 to 200,000 pounds over the space of an hour looking for and trying to pick up the downed air crew. And that's the search and rescue mission, Mike, is by far one of the most complex missions we do because everything is off the cuff. Everything is ad hoc. You are having to completely change your plans and your air refueling plan based on trying to rescue the downed air crew. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was uh, that was only the really big change that would happen to the five and a half hours uh, average shore duration I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, air refueling's pretty boring, really. You know, you come up, Go up into the box, put the boom down, refuel six to ten fighters, and you can turn around and go home. Yeah. And you're done. So, but every once in a while, you have uh, some new wrinkles that you have to deal with, and and there are some changes that happen in the air based on how fluid the uh, battle situation is, mm-hmm. and. An example from Afghanistan during Operation Anaconda, a KC-10 stayed airborne for 15 hours and offloaded, I think it was 180,000 pounds of gas. That's nothing to be sniffed at, is it? <laughs> no. Uh-uh. You know, and if you think about 180,000 pounds, almost 200,000 pounds of gas, that's how much a KC-135 takes off with. Mm-hmm. And they got mid-mission refueled, or we, we call it consolidating, um, several times because a KC-10 had broken on its way down, had to turn around and come back, and the battle was not going well. As anybody that's read about Anaconda knows, the first couple days, uh, it was terrible. And so this KC-10 out of Aldafra stayed up for 15 hours. That's unusual. Okay, that is something that happened simply because of, of a very uh, sad situation on a battlefield. Uh, but normally, you know, five to six hours was our sortie duration. Mark chats about the KC-135 cockpit. The KC-135 cockpit has gone through a number of avionics modifications. And um, back in the 1950s, of course, they were... I have visitors. (laughs) (laughs) 
Hang on just a second. No worries. Bye, guys. Obviously, in the 1950s, we were using, you know, old tube technology. Uh, when I first started in the aircraft, we had what was called the FD-109, and then I left the airplane with the uh, Pacer Crag and ring laser gyros and MFDs. But as you come up the crew entry ladder, the first thing you're going to face is actually the booms chair. And he sits right behind the crew entry hole, so to speak. And he has behind him a lot of circuit breakers on a very large panel. As you turn to your left, uh, you have the old navigator's table. Um, the navigator had all of the radar systems, communication systems, navigation systems, uh, and a very large desk uh, that he did his work on because obviously we would spread very large charts out uh, on his desk as we were navigating you know, across the Atlantic or across the Pacific uh, or across the United States. So uh, he had a radar panel that adjusted the radar tilt, the gain, and all those things. Then he had a compass system uh, that he used and a radar repeater uh, in front of him. And uh, this is the old APN 59 type radar. Uh, oddly enough, we shared the same radar system with the C-130s. Um, oh, really? Yeah, we did. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either until my radar broke and we landed at Yakota. <laughs> and my crew chief told me, he goes, oh, this is a perfect place to get this fixed because we share the same radar system as the 130s, which are based at Yakota. Uh -huh. So uh, for all you aviators out there, it helps to know your systems and it helps to know uh, what other airplanes are flying your systems uh, <laughs> in case of uh, malfunction or so forth. Moving up to the front seat, we've got Obviously, the, the co-pilot and the pilot sitting side by side, and there's a long pedestal that runs between us. At the end of that pedestal is the uh, rudder trim, and it's just a, all it is is a, uh, a handle that you move, that you twist back and forth. Um, the throttles are on that pedestal, and then at the head of it is the fuel panel. The fuel panel was old 1960 technology where, you know, you open the valve, close the valve. Um, it was pretty crazy, okay? Uh, it was all analog, you know, big gauges and so forth. But uh, a cockpit modification put a digital fuel panel in where, you know, it was a press button and, and so forth. Um we do not segregate the fuel in the KC-135. We are burning the same fuel that we were offloading. Uh, the body tanks, the aft body tank and the forward body tank, have uh, two pumps each in them that are controlled from that fuel panel. We have four pumps in the airplane in the, in the 
four and a half body tank that pumps the gas out the boom. Uh, a single pump uh, can pump about a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds a minute. Typically, in a B fifty two, we were offloading six thousand pounds a minute through the through the boom, and that all again was from this fuel panel opening the valves that went back to the boom and so forth. Okay, so the co-pilot normally handled the the fuel panel uh, and uh, the pumping gas. Uh, as you go up the instrument panel, above the fuel panel are the engine gauges, okay? And there was a series of six round dials that uh, told you everything from starting in the A model's engine pressure ratio uh, in the R models, it was N1. Uh, oil pressure, uh, exhaust gas temperature, all the things a pilot needs to know to make sure the engines are healthy, okay? Uh, in front of the pilot, you'd have an attitude uh, indicator, and underneath that, an uh, HSI. Those became uh, multifunction displays in the Pacer Crag system, which were, uh, they call it a 5 ATI uh, display. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were really good. So, and you can change those between, you know, like a stick map or a compass rose or, or, or whatever. Uh, and you can even switch them bottom to top if you wanted to. Then you had airspeed, altitude, and so forth. And all of those things became digitized as the Pacer Crag system came on. Uh, across the glare shield, we had the uh, engine fire warning system, the T-handles that uh, would cut off electricity, fuel, and then the push buttons for the fire bottles. Uh, looking overhead, uh, on the overhead panel, you had the pressurization panel, uh, the electrical panel, the autopilot, uh, the uh, flight director system uh, for takeoff and, and approach and landing that uh, moved the command bars and activated the computers for the command bars for flying approaches and so forth. And you had two radios. We started with two UHF radios, uh, and then during Desert Storm, we went to uh, a UHF over the pilot and a UHF VHF, it was called an ARC 210 radio made by Rockwell Collins above the co pilot. Um, now they have two ARC 10s and they are wonderful radios, okay? Uh, we obviously would use secure voice in a number of our missions. Uh, have Quick is frequency hopping, KY 58 is a, uh, uh, an encryption system. Um, we would use either or most of the time. Um, and the old system was very hard to, to tune all that stuff up and get all that stuff loaded. We did it through a little gun. Okay. Uh, the R210, you did it by the tip of your finger. Okay. And it always worked. <laughs> it was really good. Uh, there were times in the old radios where sometimes have quick would work. Frequency hopping would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. Uh, but the R210s solved that problem, and it was real easy to, to put all that stuff in. Going down my right leg, we had another panel 
sitting in the left seat that had the nose wheel steering and also had uh, like brake pressure, the anti-skid, and uh, so forth. On the co-pilot side, off of his right leg, he had the HF radio and um, an intercom panel, which I also had on my side, that we could, you know, listen to the ILS, the TACAN, COM1, COM2, HF. Typically, we had four radios that we were listening to on a single mission. COM1, COM2, the VHF, and the HF all uh, tuned up at the same time, particularly in combat. Did this get confusing for yourself? You know, people would think that that would get confusing, but after a while, it does not, okay? In the AWACS, they've got 18 radios, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, they're not, I mean, one person isn't listening to them all 18 at one time. They do have a technician on board that's kind of handling the comm sheet, but, um, it wasn't really all that confusing. Uh, during certain portions of the mission, uh, when you're inside the air refueling airspace, you're listening to comm one because that was the, the command radio, uh, going to the box Inside the box, that's who you were talking to the receivers on was COM-1. So, F-16's going overhead right now. Sorry about that. Wow. Yeah. I'm waiting to see my first F-35 go by. Anyway, so listening to the four radios, Mike, really wasn't that difficult. And each radio had a, uh, a purpose. So, when we were flying a combat mission... Like I said, command and control was in COM-1. We could listen to uh, the boom radio was in COM-1 also. Uh, Then we were listening to air traffic control and the VHF in COM-2. And then the HF radio was actually a threat warning radio. Uh, We had an AWACS frequency that we would tune in there. Uh, God, isn't that crazy? I can still remember what it was. White one. (laughs) It was called White One. I can't remember the exact frequency. I think it was 1555 but uh, in the HF. But that was a threat frequency that they could talk to us on and say, hey, you know, MiGs are airborne out of Al-Assad. Uh, they're heading south, you know. And, uh, but we didn't get a lot of threats over that. Usually it came over the, the command and control net, which was tuned to the AWACS once you're airborne. Here, Mark talks about air-to-air refueling. Let me just give you kind of a rundown of each airplane, okay? The fighters were actually pretty easy. Um, Being as maneuverable as they are, they would come right underneath you. They'd stick right there and, and just stay there, okay? I think the most difficult airplanes to refuel were the big, heavy cargo planes, okay? Now, many of your listeners won't know this, but a C-5 can actually drive the tanker from the boom. Oh, didn't know Okay, and here's why, okay? The boom acts like a rudder, okay? And because it's a big piece of metal sticking out there. A C-5 could actually move to the side, and it would cause the boom to move to the side, and act like a rudder and make us turn, okay? Mm. 
The other reason the C5 and uh, to some extent the C17 are difficult is because they're so large. Mm-hmm. Um, the other airplane that's has a big bow wave is the NAOC, the uh, National Airborne uh, Operations Center, uh, the E4, because the bow wave in front of them is so huge, it actually causes the our tail to lift up as that wave comes underneath our airplane, which makes the airplanes come together, okay, because it tips our nose down, so we descend into them, okay? Mm-hmm. So you really had to kind of watch what you were doing. Uh, I mean, the autopilot took care of all that, and you watch the trim wheel move to make sure that it was trimming, and you should see about two complete turns every 10 feet as they got closer to us. The pre-contact position is 50 feet from the end of the nozzle, okay? And as they would move up, the trim wheel would compensate for that bow wave. Now, we had to be able to do this autopilot off. And it was a training item for us, okay? And during training missions, we'd refuel the C-5 um, off the coast of California. And you would put in like two fairly long inputs of trim every 10 feet. And the boom operator would call, he's at 50 feet, he's at 40 feet, he's at 30 feet, he's at 20 feet, he's at 10 feet, contact. And by doing that, you knew at every 10-foot interval, you would go with the trim (laughs) in order to keep that bow wave from affecting your airplane. So... It wasn't so much difficult as it was you just had to pay attention to what you were doing and making sure that these big airplanes uh, that had these big bow waves, the trim was keeping up with it because it would cause the airplanes to collapse on each other in a potential midair, right? Um, other airplanes, the B-52, uh, really didn't affect us that much. And uh, you have to remember those bigger airplanes were taking quite large offloads, uh, 80 to 100,000 pounds. My largest offload was to a B-52 overhead Guam. It had left California and was flying nonstop to Darwin, Australia. And it got 100,000 pounds over Hawaii, and we took off, flew northeast of Guam for about a half hour and rendezvoused with the B-52 and immediately started pumping gas into him because 103,000 pounds takes about 22 minutes to uh, offload it into him, okay? Again, 6,000 pounds a minute, you know, times 103,000. It's 103,600 pounds as a matter of fact. Now, for your listeners to understand, let me break down that math for you, okay? 103,000 pounds of gas is 16,444 gallons of gas. Mm -hmm. That amount of gas, a family burns approximately 1,100 gallons uh, of gas a year, okay? So that would allow you 
to basically drive your car, one offload, drive your car for over 15 years, almost 16 years, okay? On one offload out of a KC-135. That's, that's, you can't even like, you can't even think about what that actually means, really. I know, I know. So, let me expand that number a little bit more for your uh, listeners, okay, Mike? During the shock and awe campaign, in 23 days, 21 days, we offloaded 423,233,000 pounds of gas, okay? I got a phone call from a major in the Pentagon. This is a good anecdote for for the kind of phone calls we get during war that are so irrelevant, you, you can't even believe you get them. <laughs> and this major needed to put how much gas tankers, like this one behind me, had offloaded during the war. And I said, I really don't have time for this. I'm running an air campaign. Bye. Click. Okay. I was pretty rude to the major. About 10 minutes later, he called back. He says, Colonel, I really need this number. My general really wants to know. And uh, I gave him a rather rude answer again. My general's not your general. I'm running an air campaign. Thank you. Bye. All right. And hung up on him again. Okay. <laughs> well, this young major was very persistent. He called a third time. Okay. So he wore me down. All right. I had sympathy on the major. I said, look. Give me 20 to 30 minutes because I'm dealing with something right now. Uh, it was the 1st of April, and if you go back and look at the history of the Shock and Awe campaign, a lot of things are happening on the 1st of April. Uh, we had another strike on Saddam uh, and so forth, so we were really busy, okay? I tried to figure out a way that I could make people understand what 423 million pounds is. General Mosley, the Combined Forces Air Component Commander, had just bought a brand new Ford F-150 truck. We looked up on the internet what its gas mileage was and did some math. 423 million pounds of gas would allow General Mosley to make 1,082 round trips to the moon or eight round trips to the sun in his F-150 truck. So that's what we gave to the that's what we gave to the major, okay? Now, two days later, General Mosley came up to my desk and said, What did you do to my truck? <laughs> Apparently they had put that uh, anecdote and all those numbers in some, um, newspaper clippings. I guess he found out about it, so that was kind of funny, you know, telling him, yeah, we used your truck for this uh, math thing. But uh, when you talk about the amount of gas we're offloading, our biggest day was 17 and a half million pounds. And that was two days before we went into Baghdad when we were doing what's called the kick-ass missions, where we were knocking down the Republican Guard really hard with uh, close air support. Uh, kick-ass stands for kill box interdiction, interdiction slash close air support, all right? Um, and we did 17 and a half million pounds. That was our biggest day during the Shock and Awe campaign. So difficult is probably the biggest, the big receivers like the C5, the C17, the 747, simply because the aerodynamics of bringing the two airplanes together like that uh, make it 
a little interesting if the trim doesn't keep up. Uh, but most of the time, you know, you see the trim wheel move like it's supposed to, and they park underneath us, and we give them their 80,000 pounds, and we go on our merry way. Here we get to hear what it was like on the first night of Desert Storm. I recently have uh, gotten in contact with, his name is John Boy. He's, he was lieutenant colonel at the time, and he was the package commander for the first weasels, 12 weasels, into Baghdad. Uh, three days before the war started, we were told that we were assigned this mission. I would be leading Tuna 6-4 flight of three KC-135s refueling 12 weasels, four on each tanker. Their call signs were Coors, Lone Star, and Michelob flights. They are named after beer, all right? <laughs> Whenever you heard a beer call sign in Desert Storm, you knew it was a weasel. They also had three EF-111 jammers that were with them, and their call signs were Drill, uh, 7172, and 73. During a phone conversation with John Boy, we worked out all of the timing of his mission, and he told us that he had to be at a certain spot during refueling and he had to pass over that spot, couldn't be 10 seconds early or 20 seconds late. And we assured him that we would do that. And we worked out some other issues, and three days later, we flew the mission. We took off out of Jeddah. We were the second tanker to take off that night. The first one took off, refueled to AWACS. We took off on the center runway at uh, 30-second interval. So all three tankers are airborne, and we had a hold down altitude that going to the east. And as we were going to the east and all the tankers were rejoining, we went underneath what was called Nighthawk. Nighthawk was the F-117 refueling track that literally stretched from the south of Saudi Arabia up to the north, okay? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> three tankers went over the top of us with two F-117s on them. And my co-pilot says, man, look at that. And we all looked up through the windows, the eyebrow windows, and could see these guys going over the top of us. We were refueling on a track called Lime Pre. Lime Pre means pre-strike. We waited for 20 minutes. All of the weasels joined on us, and we had to test their refueling systems first. There's no sense in going up to Baghdad if your refueling system doesn't work. So each one of the airplanes joined on us completely calm out. Nobody's talking. This is all done radio silent. And all of the airplanes were able to take on, uh, take on gas. And we filled them up, made sure we got what's called a pressure disconnect with them that told us, okay, they're full. And we just hung out until the time John Boy told us he had to be heading north. Hmm. We 
arranged our orbit and cut it short to turn north right at the time he said. And he was worried because we were heading south. And he said over the radio, turn as we were going into the turn. So he was pretty happy that we were all on the same sheet of music. Well, that one point that he said he had to go through was the electronic screen of Iraqi's long-range radars. It's called the High Early Warning Ground Control Intercept Line. Okay, that's where their radars, that's the maximum range of their radars, okay? And we went through that five seconds early, okay? As we went through that, Task Force Normandy, the helicopters were striking an early warning radar site and blowing it up at the very same time. And it caused all the the Iraqi Air Force to react, and they started taking off. And I heard over the radio from Choctaw, the, the AWACS, saying, MiGs Airborne, Manny uh, 330 at 20, okay? So on the 330 degrees... 20 miles from Manny, which was H2 Airfield, these MiGs were taking off, heading to the northwest, and were getting to, were beginning to turn around to intercept F-15Es that had just bombed Scud sites. Then they came back with multiple groups of fulcrums, Manny 155 at 55 South Fast. That was Medicis Airfield which was only a hundred miles off our nose. Mm. We were really nervous at this time, okay? (laughs) But our mission was to refuel these weasels and load them to the gills with gas. And we kept pressing forward. We kept going north, okay? Uh, I'm thinking in my mind, the F-15 should be moving north to go get these guys. The weasels are carrying air-to-air missiles if we get threatened. I'm just going to continue north and continue on my mission. But I was really nervous, okay, with these MiG calls, particularly with the fulcrums that had launched out of Medicis Airfield about 100 to 120 miles in front of us. And they're very capable. They could take an F-15. Yeah, yeah, they're very capable airplanes, okay? And they, in fact, made a turn to the south and were trying to run down the same Strike Eagle package that was coming out. Hmm. Now, there was another radio call saying that the fulcrums are now turning south, coming south, and I heard one of the greatest radio calls I've ever heard in combat. Pennzoil check, two, three, four. Xerox check, two, three, four. Mobile check, two, three, four. It was all 12 air-to-air F-15s checking on. <laughs> and Cluzo is the guy's name who was the F-15 package commander that night was the guy checking them all in and then he says push purple one and they all push to a discrete air to air frequency talking to the AWACS who is giving them vectors to all of these bigs they moved across okay but now they don't have a clear field of fire because all the all the F-15 strike eagles are coming out and everything and now they're kind of having to sort through where everybody is 
but they shot down like four or five MiGs really fast, okay? Wow, yeah. And we just kept moving north. I don't know that this air battle is going on. I know that the F-15s are now going north and doing their thing. And as we kept pushing farther north, what seemed like an eternity, but like I said, was probably only seven or eight minutes later, Choctaw came back and said, picture clear to the north, which meant all of the MiGs are dead, okay, Mm -hmm. or had been shot down, which is a good thing. And so there was a big hoot in my cockpit, you know, woohoo, they're all dead, you know. (laughs) And uh, we kept moving north, okay. Well, now the Iraqi forces have reacted and uh, things are starting to happen. But again, our mission is to keep refueling these weasels because they are the first wild weasel package into Baghdad and they're going to take down all of the SAM sites in downtown Baghdad, all right? And, uh, you know, people said, well, that takes a lot of courage, that takes a lot of guts, but it was our mission and that was what we were there to do. So we kept moving north. Well, we got to the end air refueling point and all of the weasels had not taken all their gas yet. So we kept heading north and kept going. Uh, we were in a block altitude 21,000 to 23,000 feet and we just continued pumping gas. And John Boy tells me that we actually went inside Iraqi airspace. Uh, I do not know uh, my navigator did not say if we had or not, but I figured when the weasels left my wings and started moving north that our mission was done. And sure enough, after a few, again, it seemed like hours, but probably was only minutes, John Boy's Coors flight dropped off the wings, went below us, and passed out in front of us, okay? And I could see them against this cloud deck that was down low, okay? So you've got this cottony blanket out in front of us, and I could see all four of his weasels because they still had those slime lights on. And then the EF-111 joined on them, and he's a lighter gray color, and he disappeared over those clouds. And then my co-pilot says, here comes the other weasel flight. So now I know the second weasel flight is done, meaning the third one's probably done. It's time to turn around and beat feet for home. So I made a left-hand turn, pushed the throttles up. We came home at about 10 knots under the maximum speed of the tanker. And, uh, you know, some people say, you know, that's because of fright. But actually it was because I wanted to get the tankers home and on the ground so that they could refuel them and put water on them because you have to remember I've got the old J79 mm. or excuse me J57 motors that burn water okay your science teacher lied to you water does burn and these motors prove that okay mm. um, but it was to reconstitute the tanker so that they could go out and fly another mission and uh, we got home and uh, sure enough loaded the airplanes up with gas and uh, they went out and flew another mission and we went home, and we're sitting there talking about our mission. We're watching CNN, and all of a sudden, they're interviewing John Boy on CNN at Bahrain at his base at Sheikh Issa. 
and he's talking about this incredible light show and this Christmas tree and everything, and we're all screaming, that's the guy we refueled! That's the guy we refueled! And, and uh, it was kind of a surreal moment seeing the guy you had just refueled to go into combat on CNN being interviewed and talking about his mission. So that was a very memorable uh, mission for me. And, and it was probably a life-changing event for me as a pilot because I'd flown my first combat mission. I'd survived my first combat mission. Uh, it went about as smoothly as it could go. And from then on, uh, I gained more confidence. My crew gained, gained more confidence with each mission we flew. And so by the 10th mission, things were pretty routine. Even though the MiGs were still flying and a lot of things were happening, uh, refueling became more routine. And uh, it's really true what they say. After after about 10 missions, guys settle down and fly uh, like they're supposed to, not so scared about what's going to happen around them. That was a very memorable memorable mission, though. Coors, Lone Star, Michelob, and Drill. Mark chats about his upcoming book, Pumping Gas. Book Pumping Gas, I, I, I show this is what it was like refueling in the Cold War. Here's what it was like in Desert Storm. Here's what it was like in Allied Force. And there is no book out there, and I've looked, and several of my friends have looked, that covers air refueling operations from the end of the Cold War through the hunt for uh, Saddam and bin Laden, mm -hmm. which is the secondary name of the book, Air Refueling Operations from the Cold War to the Hunt for Saddam and bin Laden. Mm -hmm. And it really changed during that time period because we were so focused on Strategic Air Command's nuclear mission and then we went to a strictly conventional type of mindset that the tanker community was not ready for. And uh, I had never flown defensive maneuvers inside my airplane ever during Desert Storm. And the story that I tell on the first night of Desert Storm where we, know we have MiGs airborne, they're coming down at us, and I have never performed any defensive maneuvers in my airplane. They were restricted maneuvers in the airplane during training. And now I'm having to fly potentially defensive maneuvers at night over desert terrain on a moonless night. Um, looks like it's going to be about 370 pages mm -hmm. uh, with the pictures and um, thinking somewhere around 160,000 words. And uh, when it's coming out is something I'm working on right now, getting a publisher for that. So we're trying to get it out in the fall uh, before the end of the year, okay? I'm trying to get a hardback, published hardback. Uh, but there may be, a, uh, there may be an interactive um, online uh, portion of the book that your readers will be able to go to because there are so many pictures. Yeah. Okay? And... Uh, one uh, gentleman who does publish books out in California told me that there may be two books here, one on air refueling and then another tabletop picture book. So uh, we'll see what happens. That'll be great, yeah. 
And also, because yeah. I know our viewers and on the, you know, the air crew interview community, they always want signed books. So will there be any signed editions available? The, I will even come to England and sign them. <laughs> A book tour will be great. <laughs> yes, I'm sure there will be book tours, okay? Because think about all the nations that fly air refueling airplanes. You know, yes. you have... Uh, uh, obviously, uh, the RAF and their brand new uh, Airbus tankers. Mm. Um, uh, I'm very familiar with EADS. As a matter of fact, one of their vice presidents is a former lieutenant general I, I worked with. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, out in Washington D.C. And um, even though this book covers KC-10 and KC-135 uh, air refueling operations. Uh, the lessons learned in the book really are for any country that's flying tankers. Yeah. And I think there's, what, 18 countries that have uh, big air refueling tankers now, and many of them are buying more. Yes. Uh, some of them are looking for air refueling uh, aircraft now. That's one of the things Cobham is working on is a roll-on, roll-off uh, air refueling package they put in the back of C-130s, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of things. So. Uh, there's going to be a book tour, and it's probably going to be international. Uh, and uh, besides, I love England. I want to come over. Uh, we just recently spent a whole week in England and London running around. We went yeah. up to Stirling Castle and so forth. And uh, I operated out of Fairford and Milden Hall several times and, uh, and uh, obviously want to come Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. Also, please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content, prizes, upcoming interviews, and much more. And of course, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.